Okay, let's read. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrew. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, When I was 23 years old, seems hard to believe that was quite a while ago, but when I was 23 years old, I became a youth pastor, and I was overseeing a bunch of uh, high school age students. And I quickly realized that I didn't really know how to teach them much of anything. And I couldn't answer a lot of their questions either. Um, so here I was the pastor to have supposed to have the answers to their questions. And I was kind of, uh, mm, eh. I didn't, yeah, I didn't really know. Um, I've always, I, I, even part of that, I'd, I'd always studied the Bible and I had memorized bits and pieces of it, uh, but my theological depth was shallow, to say the least. So I began, I was like, I got to get this fixed, right? And, and fast. Um, so I began researching churches on the island that I was living on to find a pastor who went to a reputable Bible college or seminary. And sadly, I didn't find many that even went to a Bible college or seminary, but I did find one old bloke. His name is Rick. And so I literally, I rang him up. He was on the other side of the island. And uh, he answered, called the church office, and I said, hey, my name's Rob. You don't know me from a bar of soap, but uh, it looks like that, you know, you went to this seminary that I've heard of, and you've actually in your lifetime that you've taught at various Bible colleges and done lectures, etc., Is there any chance that we could catch up for a coffee? So I said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no problem. Uh, next week, there I was uh, waiting, and here comes this older gentleman, pretty tall, white hair, pants up like Steve Urkel, and he goes, he has a very soft, nice voice. He goes, hi there, Brother Rob. My name is Rick. It sounds pretty similar to that. And I'm like, hi, Rick. And we sit down, and I shared with him. I said, look, I, 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 need, to, I need to grow in my understanding of God. And he said, well, I'd, I'd be delighted to help you. That's how he talks. I'd be delighted. He said, you know, I'd be delighted to help you with that. Let's get to it as soon as possible. Why don't we start meeting every Wednesday at my house at 6 a.m. and studying systematic theology together? We can study Bavink. We can study, and I'm like, who's Bavink? We can study all these names, stop dropping all these names. I'm like, look, man, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, well, go to the local Christian bookstore, get this guy. It's an introduction to systematic theology. His name's Wayne Grudem. And I was like, yeah, sure, don't know who that d- guy is, but I'll go ahead and grab the book. So went, grabbed the book. 6 a.m., there I was, 
meeting with Rick, and it was incredible because uh, this man had had studied God's word. He he there's there's a lot of depth and breadth to his understanding of of who God is, and we started in the very first chapter uh, of of systematic theology, and I started asking a lot of questions, and he'd say, "Oh, have you never read this?" And I'd say, "I don't know, you know, what that book is." He'd say, "Oh, come with me," and I'd walk into his massive library. He'd pull a book off the shelf, he'd Xerox a copy of it, or just hand it to me, and he'd say, "Now, prior to next week, I want you to read these four chapters on top of this one, and I want you to at least have." three good questions for me so that I, I just go for it. I would just just dis- digest these chapters. I'd r- read them and reread them. I'd have a Bible with me and I would just mark up my Bibles. I'd go along. So much was coming together. Now, now here's the deal. Uh, we, I did that starting from 23 years old until I was about 30, 31, until I actually um, moved to go to seminary myself. What that did that time, it's not just give me a bunch of cool information, but my heart and love for God was just expanding to the ninth degree because I was able to know the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself truly, not just from an experience, not just from what someone else said about God, but actually studying God's word and and meeting with this man, Rick, who was investing into me. April even noticed quickly after I started meeting with Rick at 6 a.m. every Wednesday, she noticed that I was maturing, that I was under, that my, my, my mind was shifting in, uh, my idea of me as the leader of the home of our of our marriage, my ideas about preaching, about the church, all of that was shifting to keep God at the center and his glory. Um, I'm so grateful for Rick investing that time. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about it. One of my goals, because, you know, as I was, as I was studying, no one ever taught me any of these things, right? When I was 23 and 24 and 25 years old, I would just—I was always blown away, and I was so grateful to, to lean on to Rick, as it were. And I was like, how come no one ever, like, God is so much bigger than I gave him credit for, if you can even use that phrase. And I was, I was thinking every time I'd read each week, every time I'd study, I would think, I wish every single Christian— would have this privilege. I wish every single Christian would think big thoughts after God. Again, I'm not the guy, um, you know, just because I'm this academic or whatever. I'm just the cruisy, coasty surfer guy. But I wanted to know God. I wanted to, to plumb the depths of his attributes and his character. And I am just so grateful for that. One of my goals as the pastor of this church one of my goals is that we would have a high view of God. One of the goals in this series is that we would uh, really encounter a lofty, as it were, big view of God. And then that would paint the rest of how we think about church, 
how we think about leadership in the home, how we think, I mean, on and on and on and on and, and it goes. Um, so today, what we're going to do is carry on this study of God, the, the character, the attributes of God. And we're going to pick one. Uh, last week was that God is self-sufficient or God is self-existent. Uh, today, we're going to talk about God as unchanging. God as unchanging. Meaning, God is unchangeable in his character and in all of his ways. God is fixed in who he is. He is unalterable, as it were. Or as the hymn writer puts it, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. And then it says this a little later in the hymn. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. That's what I want to talk about. That God is unchangeable. As a kid, I grew up watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And for those of you who don't know what that is, they're turtles that mutated, right? They became, they went from these little turtles to these, you know, really strong ninjas and would beat up Shredder, who's the bad guy, and his, for and his forces, Bebop and Rocksteady or something like that. They mutated, though, right? They were these little pathetic little helpless turtles, as well as their leader, Splinter, who was a rat, and now he's, anyway. They all, they all mutated. I, why am I saying all of that? Because God is immutable. In other words, God is not mutating. He's not changing. He is immutable. That, that is the technical phrase for this, that God is unchanging. He is immutable. And because of that, well, he doesn't, God is unchanging in his ways in his word, and in his will. So that's where we're headed this morning. God is unchanging in his ways, meaning his nature, in his word, and in his will. People change, seasons change, God remains the same. I pray that that is an encouragement for you this morning as we think about that. So let's pray now, and then we'll, we'll dive into our time together. Father, we come before you as needy sinners. Uh, Lord, we are so prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Uh, we are so quick to uh, be distracted. Even now, Lord, even now in our minds, we, we pray that you would uh, be merciful to us, that you'd put aside distractions as our minds begin to drift and think about things that are just either silly or irrelevant or just distracting. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would help keep us on point and focus, that we may know you, that our hearts may, may sing of your glory as we learn about you being unchanging. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were a 
fly on the wall in my house, in the Jenner house, say the last few months, one thing that you would hear is Disney songs being ricocheted across our house. My kids love Disney songs, particularly as of late, has been a favorite. And Pocahontas, I'm, I'm going to quote Pocahontas. Yes, I'm going to quote Pocahontas. I just did the Ninja Turtles, so here we go. Pocahontas has a line that really captures the nature of change in, in her song, Just Around the River Bend. Let me read it for you. It goes like this. Uh, and you know what? I'm not going to, you're, you're lucky that we're not all gathered because I'd probably start singing and you know that, but I'm just going to read it. What I love most about rivers is you can't step in the same river twice. The water's always changing, always flowing. That is very true. By the time that you take your second step into a river, the river has changed. The water you enter then is different from the water that you encountered with your first step because of the current, right? The water, the water keeps moving and flowing. And not only the river itself is moving in terms of, of the water, but unperceived by us in microscopic terms, there are other changes taking place in that river as well. Man, Pocahontas is quite the philosopher. She's legit. Oh, I mean, I'd, I'd, I don't, I hate to burst your bubble or, or break your heart on this, but that, uh, Pocahontas, that actually didn't come from Pocahontas. It came from a Greek philosopher. Um, his name is Heraclitus. And Heraclitus taught that everything we see in this world is undergoing change. And we know that's, that's true, right? We know that in our own bodies. We're born, we age, and then we die. Or you can even see that with your pets. Sometimes your pets typically don't live as long as, as human beings. And so you have a pet, it's a puppy, and then it ages, and then it dies. Um, we see that all around us. Change pervades our world. Change per, it pervades our lives, but not so with God. The Bible teaches that he does not change. God is changeless. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is never, God is never in the process of change. To be God and to be changeable is a contradiction. There are a number of biblical texts which state this truth, and we'll look at some of them, but what I, I thought might be helpful for us as we think about God's immutability, remember that big word? God is immutable. As we think about God's immutability or God's unchangingness, I thought it might be helpful actually to look at some metaphors, some images that the Bible uses that the Bible uh, actually uses to describe God's unchangingness. We do this with our, uh, we do this in real life. Um, uh, you know, that person is as cold as ice, right? Or um, there's even a song like that. Um, she is like a breath of fresh air. Uh, he is as stubborn as a mule or as a rusty nail, right? We're, we're using these, these images um, to try to capture a trait or a characteristic of somebody, of an individual. 
Scripture does this with God's unchanging nature as well. Um, let me give you two images. The first is of a rock. A rock. And I don't mean a little stone, but a massive cliff or a mountain. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I used to live in Hawaii. And I was on the island of Oahu. And if you would stand in my backyard or really even look out my back, I lived in a little granny flat. And if you were to live, if you need to look out the back window, you would see this enormous mountain range called the Ko'olau Mountains, which shot up 900, I mean straight up, shot straight up 945 meters into the sky. I mean, the peaks stood nearly a kilometer tall. And no matter how much you looked at them, you'd always feel tiny in comparison because these mountains represented strength and stability. That's the type of image the Bible uses to describe God. Moses said, the rock. His way is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is the rock who does not change. He always remains faithful and powerful. And you know, King David knew this firsthand. When King David was just a young buck, he had a psychopath named Saul, who was king at the time, trying to just snuff him out and destroy him. So David found himself often hiding in caves in these sort of rock fortresses, as it were. And as David's hiding, look how he, look at the connection he makes here. Because here's the key. He thinks about his hiding place. Yes, that is hiding him from Saul and from the, his enemies, but it's not so much the hiding place itself. The key is, because what happened, like caves collapse, right? Rocks break down into pebbles. It's not the hiding place itself, but it's God who is the true rock. That is where he banks his, that's where he puts his trust. Look at Second so, uh, Samuel 22. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Or in the Psalms, we see David dressing God as his rock or his source and assurance of salvation. Psalm 62, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. A few verses later, he says, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Do you see how David's understanding of God as his rock? You understand that there? You see the, how, how David, how his understanding of God as his rock shapes the way he encounters difficulties. David's life had its ups and downs, but he knew God was unchanging. He is firm and secure, always there, never fluctuating, never vacillating as it were. God is secure. Kind of like the Sovereign Grace song goes, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart, 
my sword to fight the cruel deceiver and my shield against his hateful darts, my song when enemies surround me, my hope when tides of sorrow rise, my joy when trials are abounding, your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. The Lord is an unbreakable fortress to those who trust in him. He is a rock. Let me share another metaphor. Let me share another image that portrays God's unchanging nature. God is light. Not only a rock, God is light. James writes to persecuted Christians and points to God's unchanging character. Look what he says. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. It's interesting language there, isn't it? What does he mean? Well, he's talking about the cycles of day and night, which we witness every 24 hours. During the day, it is sunny, but when night falls, it's dark. My kiddos love shadows. Dad, look at my shadow, right? Um, in the middle of the day, though, their shadow is its not much to write home about. It's tiny because the sun rays are directly over their head. But as the sun moves toward the horizon, their shadow shifts and grows in its size. It's always changing. God, however, has no shadow, nor is he like a shadow that continually turns and shifts. He is pure and unchanging light, or as Thomas Watson put it, there is no eclipse to his brightness, which is critical for us to remember. Because when life kicks you in the teeth, or you're side-blinded by suffering that doesn't seem to ease up, in those moments it's tempting to say, come on God, what are you thinking? And you may not say it out loud, but you almost begin to wonder if God, if God has sort of a, a dark side to him. Perhaps he's, he's got a few shades of evil and maybe he's messing with you a bit. Listen, this is why we need this picture of God as pure and unchanging light, fixed in our minds and rooted in our hearts. The truth is, trials and temptations may obscure your view of God's glory as clouds obscure the light of day, but God remains the unchanging sun of holiness. He's actually ordained these trials, as painful as they are, friend, to shape you into the image of his son. That's why, he, that's why James writes in the very beginning of, of this chapter, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. But again, we shouldn't jump to the faulty conclusion that because this is happening that God is enticing us to sin or tempting us to do evil. That's why the Bible says when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Instead, we need to recognize that every good and perfect gift 
is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. He does not change. See, that language does not change like shifting shadows. You see, it's on that basis you can trust God to remain good, and you can trust that this God always has your good in mind. He is unchanging. You see how relevant that is when you're suffering? To have this view of God as, as unchanging, as constant. So, I'd like to retake the remainder of our time by thinking about three things. God is unchanging in his ways, in his word, and in his will. So let's start with the first. God is unchanging in his ways. When I say his ways, what I really mean is his nature. Basically, his character never alters in the slightest degree. For example, when the book of Malachi was written, Israel's priests were sacrificing animals that were blind, sick, and handicapped. You were supposed to give the best. You tracking with me? You were supposed to, I get made fun of for saying that phrase. That's for you, Josiah. You tracking with me? Tracking with me? Anyway. If, now I've, now I've lost my thought. In the book of Malachi, the priests, what are they doing? They're offering lame animals, right? Uh, they're offering, they're bringing gimpy animals to sacrifice, and they're supposed to offer the best. Now, to make matters worse, word has gotten out to the surrounding nations that God's people are basically treating him flippantly by bringing these handicapped animals to sacrifice, and they're essentially rubbing his name in the mud. Nevertheless, God remained steadfast and patient with them, even sending them messengers. That's Malachi's name, by the way, the me messenger. Even sending them messengers, like Malachi, to steer them back on track. But they still slide into unfaithfulness and apathy. Well, something's got to give. You would think God would say, all right, enough is enough. I am wiping you out. I'm extinguishing you. I am sick of this. But in chapter 3, he says something remarkable. Chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God's faithfulness stems from his unchanging nature. He does not change who he is, so he does not change what he says and does. Can you imagine if that were not the case? That if God were like one of the gods of the ancient Greek and Roman mythology gods, right? Th these gods, they had weaknesses, frequent moral failures. They, in fact, were even had little petty rivalries and were jealous. Uh, can you imagine if God had mood swings and decided just to take out his, his irritation on you one day? That would be a scary God. It definitely wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. You know, earlier I talked about one of the books that I started with, um, which is a helpful book. It's, it's a helpful starter. I don't agree with everything that this guy says, but Wayne Grudem has a helpful little segment thinking about this idea that God is unchanging. It's very practical. So listen, listen to what he says here. 
he says, and I'm actually um, going to have this posted for you guys to read afterwards. So if you are like, oh, I didn't catch half of what he was saying, um, then it'll be on the website for you or on Facebook afterwards. He says this, at first, it may not seem very important to us to affirm God's unchangeableness. Fair enough, right? The idea is so abstract that we may not immediately realize its significance. But if we stop for a moment to imagine what it would be like if God could change, the importance of this doctrine becomes more clear. For example, if God could change in his being, perfections, purposes, or promises, then any change would be either for the better or for the worse. But if God changed for the better, then he would not be the best possible being when we first trusted him. And how could we be sure that he is the best possible being now? But if God could change for the worse in his very being, then what kind of God might he become? Might he become, for instance, a little bit evil rather than wholly good? And if he could become a little bit evil, then how do we know he could not change to become largely evil or wholly evil? And there would be not one thing we could do about it, for he is so much more powerful than we are. Thus, the idea that God could change leads to the horrible possibility that thousands of years from now, we might come to live forever in a universe dominated by a holy, evil, omnipotent God. It is hard to imagine any thought more terrifying. How could we ever trust such a God who could change? How could we ever commit our lives to him? Moreover, if God could change with regard to his purposes, then even though when the Bible was written, he promised that Jesus would come back to rule over a new heavens and a new earth, he has perhaps abandoned that plan now, and thus our hope in Jesus' return is in vain. Or if God could change in regard to his promises, then how could we trust him completely for eternal life? Or for anything else the Bible says? Maybe when the Bible was written, he promised forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who trust in Christ. But if God can change, perhaps he has changed his mind on those promises now. How could we be sure? Or perhaps his omnipotence will change someday so that even though he wants to keep his promises, he will no longer be able to do so. A little reflection like this shows us how absolutely important the doctrine of God's unchangeableness is. If God is not unchanging, then the whole basis of our faith begins to fall apart and our whole and our understanding of the universe begins to unravel. This is because our faith and hope and knowledge all ultimately depend on a person who is infinitely worthy of trust because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Amen. That, that's, I was sharing this with Dan earlier this week and Dan's like, that is so critical like you, you just i guess you sort of you wouldn't dis most christians you would hope wouldn't disagree with those things but you don't really let that sink i mean for me I don't, I don't let that probably sink in enough and then because that god is unchanging how trustworthy he is the author of psalm 102 knew this andrew just read this for us even though this author by the way when he wrote this was suffering was lonely he poured out his heart before the Lord because his life was passing away like a shadow. And things weren't looking so good for his people either. But he is confident 
that God will have mercy and show his glory to the world when he builds up his people. Now, why is he so sure of this? The author of Psalm 102. He banks on God's unchanging character. Look what it says. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The most stable objects we can see in this world, friends, the ground beneath our feet or the skies above our heads, change, decay, and ultimately will be destroyed. But the Creator is the same God who was before He created the world and will remain the same God when this world is no more. That's why the psalmist concludes with these words. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. You see, the unchangeableness of God's being provides stability because he cannot fail to do what he has promised. Not only is God unchanging in his ways, he is unchanging in his word, which is our second point. God is unchanging in his word. God's word can never change or be altered. What God has spoken is etched in stone, written with a pen of iron. The longest chapter in the Bible is a, is a psalm. It actually has 176 verses to it, which describe the perfections of the word of God. Psalm 119 is this psalm. And it really, it stands as a testimony to the unchangeable nature of God's word. In verse 89, it says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Throughout all the ages to come, God's word is fixed. It is firm. It says this in Psalm 119, another verse here, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 16. He said, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Is that not amazing? Jesus said it would be easier for the whole universe to go out of existence than just for one letter to fail to be accomplished and to come to pass. This all testifies to the eternality of God's word. We can bank our lives on the word of God, friend. We, we can wake up tomorrow morning and know for certain that what God had said yesterday will be true for all time. You know, but it doesn't take much, does it? When you just look around at our culture to, to see that the world is rapidly changing. When it comes to moral issues dealing with marriage, family, sexuality, the culture is always adapting. In fact, some people have noticed the cultural trend, particularly in the last 10 years, and they've called it a moral revolution. And I'd have to agree with that. In the last 10 years, there has been a massive moral revolution in regards to some of the things I just talked about. But you know, God has not changed his standard of what is right and wrong. His word is the same for every generation, for every country, 
for every age because it, because it is always the same. His standard for the family is forever the same. His standard for morality is forever the same. His standard for sexuality is always the same. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So not only is God unchanging in the perfections of his nature or ways, God is unchanging in his word. And lastly, God is also unchanging in the purposes of his heart. That is, is he has an unchangeable will. So God is unchanging in his ways, his word, and his will. In the Old Testament, there's a peculiar event in the book of Numbers. There's a king um, named Balak who wanted the nation of Israel cursed. So he hires this thug prophet, basically, named Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. There's a lot of going back and forth in this story. It's wild in the book of Numbers. But in the end, Balaam found himself compelled to say this. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You see the contrast there between God's nature and human nature? We know that people are inconsistent and unreliable. They might promise one thing yet do something else or just straight up lie. But God is nothing like this. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. And given the context here, it's pretty incredible as well. I mean, the book of Numbers doesn't paint a fancy, flattering picture of the nation of Israel, to say the least. Yet despite this, God determined to bless them. Even their sins couldn't change his plan or will for them. Because here's the deal. Once God has determined that he will bring something about, his purpose is unchanging. It will be done. Isaiah 46 says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. That's pretty airtight, would you agree? <laughs> when it comes to God's will, God's will is unbreakable, unchangeable, because God himself is unchanging. And you know what the good news is, friend? Is that for those of you that are now in Christ, you can know that before the world ever existed, before there ever was time and space and gravity, God set his love on you. His will was to save you. You would have remained in darkness your whole life, only to meet his judgment and wrath at the end. And yet, God purposed for his glory to save you. If you're a Christian right now, this morning, it's because God 
first came to you. We love because he first loved us, right? And that is because that is in part of God's eternal electing plan to save those for himself and his own glory. You know, I, I look at my life and there's no reason that I should be a Christian. And there certainly is no reason that I should be a pastor. The Lord has been so kind and so gracious to me. There's none, there are none of these things, you know, uh, as, as you get to know me more as your pastor, maybe some of you have a, a caricature of me or something that I've, you know, was this good old Baptist boy grown up in a sheltered home. You know, I, I wish, actually. Um, far from the case. And the Lord has been kind to, not only for me, but for April as well, to pluck us out of darkness and set his love on us and regenerate our hearts. We were dead in our trespasses. Remember Rob's been sharing about this in his sermons? Not me, Rob. I'm not talking about myself in the third person. Rob, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Right? God made us alive with Christ. What, what, be, and none of that could happen. Not, and I would even, like, like Wayne Grudem was saying, I wouldn't even have confidence that God would, that, or as it were, that God could see that through if God was changing. Because he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, the hope that I have even for tomorrow, that the world can continue to implode, I hope it doesn't, but the hope that I have is that I'm anchored in Jesus because he has saved me and will not only save me, but see me all the way through to the end of the new heavens and new earth where he is reigning forever. I, I cannot wait for that. The only hope that I have in that and I hope this is for you as well, is that God is immutable. God is unchanging. Look, th these aren't just abstract theological concepts. These are the very bedrock of who we believe and confess God to be. Friend, I, I pray that you see and feel the gravity of that. That this is not just, you know, oh yeah, what, wait, what are the words again? Immutable and what? No, you're missing it. You're, you're, you're missing it if that's the case. You, you have to, your heart needs to sing. Like when, when I would study and read and meditate on God, I, it was never, there's a real false dichotomy, if I can just say. There's a real false dichotomy out there that, oh, well, if you learn a bunch of information, you'll become a Pharisee. And, you, you know, you'll just, it'll be all head knowledge. That's false. That's a fallacy. You know, you know God and you know him through his word. It's not through your experience or some mystical thing that you might encounter through the week. It's through God and his faithfulness to you, trusting in him, reading his word, singing his praises, you see. And so I, I just, to, and none of that could happen again. And, and we'd have a very shallow view of that if, if our view was just, well, through our own experience or through what a friend said, but we're really studying and seeing the character and nature of God. That, I just want to encourage you with that, friend. That your heart sings. There's the, uh, what, a, what a weird thing to think that you just get information in your head and you sort of leave it there. And I, I just, I, I honestly, like, the way that I know and worship God is the more that I think on him, pray to him, study, and etc. Like, uh, I wouldn't, um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to next week as well. I hope this series so far has been an encouragement to you. Again, 
this has been one of my goals. Ever since I came here to this church, one of my goals is that we have a high view of God and think big thoughts after God. So I'm excited to continue to do that. And um, let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you again for your word and how we know you and we can know that you are unchanging. What, what a comfort that is. The world around us may fall apart and decay and our circumstances might be nothing of what we wanted or desired and yet we can look to you and, and we can bank on your promises because you are good and you are unchanging. Pray that this message today wouldn't just be a bunch of information that sort of just goes in one ear and out the next, but this would really take root in our hearts, and that we'd worship you because of it. In Christ's name, amen. This guy's going to come up here and read uh, benediction for us. And um, I did post, as I said, that little, uh, it's out of the chapter of on uh, the attributes of God from Wayne Grudem. So it'll be posted. You can have a look at that. And um, God bless you. Look forward to tuning in or having you tune in next week. See you.